This woman is in this woman is in labor about to give birth. She's in intense excruciating pain. Yet becoming a mother is extremely rewarding. And women will do it from the beginning once again having another child despite the pain. This is a portrait of Shabtai Tzvi, a man from the mid-1600s who proclaimed that he was the Jewish Messiah. Well, that was false. This is a photograph from the early 1900s from the synagogue of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement in the city of Bardichev in the Ukraine. And this is a photograph of his sitter, of his prayer book, with some handwritten requests of, for names of students. This is the personal prayer book of the Baal Shem Tov, who is the founder of the Hasidic movement, who is the topic of today's lesson. Good afternoon, it's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m., time for another Lunch and Learn. Today's topic is a birth of a movement, the founder, the founding of the Hasidic movement in the early 1700s surrounds an individual named Yisrael, known as the Baal Shem Tov. Who was this man and how did this movement get started? We are coming up to his birthday and the birth of the Hasidic movement on the Jewish calendar in the month of Elul, the 18th of Elul, coming up in a couple of days, will mark his birthday and the birth of the Hasidic movement. So I invite you to join me for this journey. The Hasids, who and where do they come from? All about the Baal Shem Tov. Hello Jody, hello Roy and Brian and Mark and everybody joining on, on for our weekly Lunch and Learn. Today's lesson has a source sheet as usual. Either in your email inbox or on this post, there is a link to today's source sheet. Some of the stories that we'll hear today, the legends, the background to the life of the mysterious Baal Shem Tov are quite mystical and fascinating and supernatural. But I'm not making up these stories. I'm merely sharing with you what our Rebbe's, our Tzadikim, the traditions going back hundreds of years, have been told to us. There are many numerous books on the Baal Shem Tov. Um, 60 minutes is not enough to go through his entire biography, but we'll try to get a glimpse of his life and we'll stick to his personal life. Um, his teachings is a whole other lesson and we do incorporate a lot of his teachings, the teachings of Hasidus and many of the lessons but um, hopefully after 60 minutes or so we'll emerge with a better understanding of this Man, Reb Yisrael. So, here we go. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. And each of the sections we will look at another area, another period of his life. And this takes us back to the late 1600s, or really even more back to the early 1600s to understand what the background, what the Jewish scene was at the time of the rising of the Baal Shem Tov. So join me as we look at source number one, 
which is a text, a source, from our Siddur, our prayer book. Every Jewish prayer book called the Siddur has <clears throat> prayers for a weekday and it has the prayers for Shabbos and holidays. And on Shabbos, the prayer is longer. We have the morning prayer called Shachris, then we have the Torah reading, and then we have the Musaf reading. And right before the Musaf reading, there's a paragraph called Av Harachamim, the Father, the Compassionate Father. We are turning to God our compassionate father. And here is a quote, source number one, from this prayer said almost every Shabbos, uh, as well as every time the Yizkar prayer coming up, we're soon going to have uh, Yom Kippur and holidays, every time Yizkar is recited, and we remember the ones that departed and passed, this paragraph is said and recited as well. What is this paragraph? Source number one, the holy communities who gave their lives for the sanctification of the divine name. Our God will recall them favorably and will avenge the blood of his servants that has been shed. That is two sentences from this long paragraph beginning with, O compassionate Father, We're asking God to remember the holy communities who were wiped out, who were decimated. They gave their lives for the sanctification of God's name, meaning they were just killed for being Jewish. And we're asking God to recall them. Yizkar means to remember and to avenge their blood. This prayer was composed, authored about 950 years ago after the Crusaders. The Crusades were, um, I guess, religious wars to, to conquer Jerusalem, reconquer it from, from the Muslims back to the Christians. And through this whole process of the Crusaders, there was the first crusade, the second and the third, beginning in, 10, in the 1090s, many Jewish communities in Germany, Ashkenazic communities, were wiped out, were destroyed, were massacres and terrible suffering. And this is what this prayer is referring to. The holy communities who gave their lives for the sanctification of the divine name. The communities in Worms, in Speyer, in Mainz. But not just then were there pogroms, The same thing happened a couple hundred years later in the year 1648. The Jewish year is known as Tach, Tach V'Tat, which if we recall the gematria, the letter is spelling Tach V'Tat, spelled out the years 1648, 1649, where there was a uprising, the Cossacks, led by Bogdan Chemelinitsky, the Chemelinitsky uprising that the people in Ukraine the Cossacks um, rebelled against their their landlords, their uh, the dominant Polish uh, kingdom and commonwealth. And again, there were lots of massacres, pogroms, and suffering as a result in Jewish communities. And historians say probably up to or around a hundred thousand Jewish people were killed, which was very vast numbers, and it was a very desolate and sad time for the Jewish people. And this prayer, even though we only say this prayer on an ordinary Shabbos, but not on a festive Shabbos, but during the times of the year in the summer 
spring months when these decrees, these pogroms actually took place, we say it nonetheless, even if it's a joyous Shabbos, because to remember the atrocities that happened during this time. So that brings us to the Baal Shem Tov. It's, the background is these terrible pogroms during, after and during the Chemelinitsky uprising and the Jewish people were, uh, were getting pretty hopeless. Families were torn apart. Families uh, were suffering. There was hunger. There, there was, uh, they, they were heavily taxed. And it was just a very difficult time for the Jewish people. And it, it, it seemed to the Jewish people that uh, it has never been so bad. And whenever life gets really, really tough, then uh, we start thinking, maybe it's time for Mashiach. It's time for the ultimate redeemer to come along and take us all back to Israel and life will be good again in our homeland and like it used to be. Source number two. As a pregnant woman comes near to give birth, she shudders. She screams in her pangs, so were we. This is a verse from Isaiah describing the excruciating and intense pain that a woman has she shudders, she screams when she comes near to give birth. So were we. The prophet is comparing the Jewish people to a woman in labor. Why is that? We see trouble, says Rashi, explaining the verse. We see troubles being renewed. And we think that they are sorts of indications of salvation and redemption. For we are promised to be redeemed out of straits as a woman giving birth. To the extent that Ula, Ula was a Amora, one of the sages of the Talmud, and he says, let the Mashiach come, but after my death, so that I will not see him. Wow, why wouldn't he want to see Mashiach? Because he was afraid of the suffering, the intense labor that would usher in the birth of Mashiach. And he did not want to have a part in that. So, whenever there is really intense suffering, the Hebrew term for it is Chevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach. Maybe Mashiach is around the corner. And this intense, terrible suffering that the Jewish people are going through, especially in the years 1648 and after, as a result of the pogroms, of the massacres, of thousands and thousands of Jewish people being uprooted, being brutally uh, tortured and persecuted and ridiculed and it was just a ter- really terrible time and it seemed like there was never been such a terrible time. So they were just ready. It was being so overwhelmed for Mashiach to come. They thought this must be the birth pangs, all the suffering. And that's that tradition as the verse says that Mashiach, the birth of Mashiach will come through much suffering. And indeed, in the 1660s came along a man by the name of Shabsai, Shabtai Tzvi. And he proclaimed himself as the long-awaited Messiah, the Mashiach. And many Jewish people were expecting a Mashiach, someone to just save them and help them and uplift them, were swept up in this interesting, unique individual's proclamations 
And although the rabbis, when they saw how he was behaving contrary to proper Torah conduct, they shunned him and they said, no, this is not the real Mashiach. But many of the masses were just so disillusioned that they were swept up. And to the extent he had this calling eventually that he, they're going back to Israel and, and some Jews even sold their homes and their whatever they had. And eventually this all had a crash landing when he was arrested by the Sultan somewhere and he, um, under the threat of being killed, he converted to another religion and the whole thing just ended. So you can imagine the end of the 1600s, the state of the Jewish people physically, emotionally, spiritually was just at a real low. They were just at a real disappointed, disillusioned, hopeless, what's going to be. And they were, there was also this divide between those that were learned and those that did not, could not learn. They were uh, so poor and hungry and trying to survive. They didn't have the means to send their children to proper Jewish education and there slowly became a larger, more vast divide between those that were more learned and more observant than those that tried to do the right thing but did not have a chance to properly learn and be educated. They were segregated to different parts of the synagogue and looked down at the, at the lead, from the leaders and the simple Jews were just uh, downtrodden. And this, is the backdrop to the birth of the Baal Shem Tov. Source number three, there, Tulust, Tuluste, was a city that had once been surrounded by a protective wall. As the wall collapsed, it left behind it a trench, Akup in Russian. I don't know this word in Russian, but something like Akup, Akupi, something like that, uh, I guess means something like a pit, like a trench. The Baal Shem Tov's parents who lived in abject poverty, could not afford housing within the city limits and were forced to live in these trenches. This is an explanation from the 5th Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, explaining why the Baal Shem Tov, we'll learn about him in a moment, but this man who was, uh, his name was Yisrael and he was from the city of Tulust, but he would sign his name from Akup sometimes. Akup. So what is this? Akup. Some say maybe it was a different town, but one explanation, and there are many different versions and the stories about the Baal Shem Tov and explanations. You know, here it says that they were very poor, his parents. Soon we'll see the story that they were actually quite well off. But this happened, you know, hundreds of years ago, so there are different details. But <clears throat> he, was, he would sign his name Yisrael from the trenches because his parents lived not being able to build a proper home and afford proper housing. They lived outside of the city where there used to be a wall around the city. And when the wall was destroyed, there was this like trench, this like dugout area. And that's where they, they, uh, they fashioned their home. So Yisrael, not just physically being born while his parents are living in this pit, but what he represents is the general state of the Jewish people, they were in the pits. They were in the trenches. The Jewish people were just at a real low, spiritually, physically beaten and broken. That's where the Baal Shem Tov's life begins. 
And that's why he would sign his name from the Akup. Why was it important? He was trying to uh, allude to the fact that he was born in a time and his mission was to somehow correct and bring comfort to a people who were in a very low state. Source number four. His name also tells us about his mission. His name was Yisrael, Israel. Israel is the name of the Jewish people. Source number four, this child was destined to infuse vitality into a suffering, depressed people. His name Yisrael is also the name of the Jewish people. We're called B'nai Yisrael, Klal Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Chai, the nation of Israel is alive. Yisrael is the name of the Jewish people. We are all children of Israel, who was a second name, well, that was a second name for Jacob. He would serve as a wake-up call for a nation deep in spiritual slumber. When somebody is in a deep faint, then there is a tradition that to try and wake up this person and draw down the essence of his soul back to uh, back to his you know reality, back down into the body to wake up from this faint. Besides pouring water, or cold water on his face or her face, there is a tradition to call the name. In his ear and say the name, uh, Moshe, Moshe, Chana, Chana, wake up. And the name, which is connected to the soul, to the essence of the person, actually can draw down the, the life force and full proper life in, back into the body. So the Jewish people at a whole were sort of sleeping. Their souls were in a deep slumber and a deep faint. There was no life. There was no warmth. There was no enthusiasm in serving God in Torah and mitzvahs. It was it was a dead time. Came the Baal Shem Tov, and by his name being Israel, it was like a call to the Jewish people, to the souls of the Jewish people. Israel, wake up! By sending a man named Israel, by his name being given given the name Israel, that was a wake up call for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. So where he was born in the trenches, his name tells us about the unique mission of this individual. How was he born? Here's another story. This story is version. He, his parents were quite uh, comfortable. Whether they lived uh, in, in the trenches or eventually they moved somewhere else. <clears throat> his parents were Eliezer and Sarah. And they were pious people, getting on in years, but childless. The one mitzvah that they really excelled in, emphasized, and did all it takes for this mitzvah was hospitality. Hachnasas orchim. The mitzvah of inviting guests into a home. Especially in those days, people would travel long distances. It was hard to stay over somewhere on Shabbat, people would go on foot, it would take lots of time for travel, for business. for, And it was important uh, for someone to have a place to be invited in, a fellow Jewish uh, home. And they lived in the small town of uh, Tulust. And there weren't much people there, a small settlement, small village. So, especially on Shabbos, they would have lots of guests, 20, 30 guests could be at, at their home, and they would give their full attention to the guests, making them comfortable with food, with lodging, whatever it is, money. And they would even send a messenger to go to the road 
leading into the village that if they see any anyone passing by, to invite them in and, and convince them that it's a good place to stay for Shabbos. And that way, every Shabbos was busy. Every Shabbos, Sarah and Eliezer attended to their guests lovingly. One Shabbos afternoon, it was towards the end of the Shabbos day, the second meal, and there's a knock at the door, and a man with a walking stick and a sack over his shoulder when his feet are dusty and dirty from the long trip, and he knocks on the door, Eliezer opens the door and announces, the man announces, Good Shabbos! Good Shabbos, responds Eliezer. Clearly, this man knew it was Shabbos. Clearly, he was violating, desecrating the sanctity of Shabbos by traveling, by walking long distances, which is not something we do on Shabbos. But Eliezer said nothing. He invited him in, sat him at the table, and treated him like everybody else. Now the rest of the guests around the table were eyeing this man. How can we give this individual, a sinner, such respect? And they were hinting to Eliezer, their host, to send him out of the house or not to be so kind and so gentle and so respectful to him. Eliezer felt so bad. He could not contain himself. He went to a side room and he burst out crying, feeling so bad. But then he realized his guest is alone. He, he might be harassed by the other guests. So he goes back in and he gave him even more honor and more respect, treating him without a word of admonishment. And he kept him there till the end of Shabbos. And he begged him to stay over the night until Sunday morning. And then he he prepared some, his wife prepared some food for for his journey. And as this man is leaving, Eliezer escorts him, which is the custom when we have a guest to escort them out on their way. Suddenly, when they're a distance from the home, this man turns to Eliezer and says, I'm not who you think I am. No? Who are you? He says, I am Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet is a man who lived 3,000 years ago in biblical times, in times of the, of, the, of the kings of the temple, first temple, talked about in the book of Kings. But he ascended to heaven and returns to visit every Seder, to visit every uh, bris, every circumcision ceremony, and comes back on special missions to help, to teach, to guide, to test. Says Elijah, I was sent here from heaven to test you and your wife. There is a big commotion in heaven from the great mitzvah of hospitality that you and your wife perform so generously. It was decided to reward you, but first to test your devotion to this mitzvah. So I was sent as a violator of Shabbos and see how you will respond. And you passed the test. You treated me with the utmost respect. And I'm notifying you from heaven that you and your wife will finally be blessed with a son. As we see in source number five, Eliyo Anavi then said, since you did not shame me, When I came to your house, you and your wife will soon be blessed with a son who will illuminate the world with the depths, depth, depths of his Torah. He will revolutionize the world, the Jewish world, 
with new teachings, with new insights, and he will illuminate the world. Sure enough, that's what happened. But Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet, tells him one more thing. Source number six, he says, when your child is five years old, tell him these two directives. Source number six, fear no one and nothing in the world apart from God alone. That's number one. Number two, from the depths of your heart and with the flame of your soul, love every Jew, whoever he may be, and in whatever state he may be. And with that, Elijah disappeared. One year later, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy on the 18th day of Elul, which is coming up in a couple of days on Monday, the 18th day of Elul, in the year 1698. Some say it was in the year 1700. Our tradition is it was in 1698. The Baal Shem Tov, later it became known as the Baal Shem Tov, but this boy was named Yisrael, by his bris and circumcision, was born. And indeed, five years later, his father, who was on his deathbed at the time, told his son Yisrael these two directives. A short time later, his mother passed away. About a year later, his mother passed away. And the Baal the Yisrael, we'll call him Yisraelik, was left as an orphan from his father, from his mother, but he was such a special child. He was a child who, although the community tried to care for this orphan, set him up with uh, in a, you know, uh, another family, he was afraid of nothing. And he loved nature, and he would spend time in the forest just wandering and meditating and the great wonders of Hashem and creation. But these two directives that he heard from his father, which Elijah the prophet told his father to give over to his son, who will illuminate the world with the teachings of his Torah, not to be afraid of anything but God. There is no other power but God. God controls everything, and everything that happens is for a reason. And the love for every single Jew, no matter how he may be, like his father did. No matter this Jew came into his home on Shabbos, he asked no questions, he treated him with respect and honor and love and compassion. These two directives are some of the, are two of the fundamental teachings that the Yisrael, when he later became the Baal Shem Tov and started the Hasidic movement, incorporated in his teachings. As we shall see. So this is our first section here. The background, the, the scene, the historic scene of the Jewish world in the 1600s. The suffering and how the Baal Shem Tov came to illuminate. Sent from heaven to inspire, to uplift the Jewish people. As a child, the Baal Shem Tov spent lots of times in isolation, meditating and studying Torah, grasping the Torah Eventually, he became part of a group called the Tzadikim Nistorim, the hidden saints, the hidden uh, righteous people, who were uh, disguised as simple people, not very learned, not very holy, just kind of ordinary people. But really, 
they were of great stature. They studied the Kabbalah and they studied the depths of Torah and really knew how to connect to God like days of old and had certain, you know, kind of holy powers, if you might say. And uh, they were there to try and inspire the Jewish people in, in secretive kind of ways. And the Baal Shem Tov became a member of this group and eventually became the leader of this group. But the first part of the Baal Shem Tov's life, the first 36 years of his life, he lived for 62 years, and the first 36 years he was mysterious, he was hidden. He was not known to the masses. He was called a tzaddik nistar, a hidden tzaddik. Till today, the Talmud tells us that in every generation there are 36 hidden tzaddikim. You know, there is a tzaddik, a righteous, holy man that everybody knows of his holiness. The miracles that they perform and, and the greatness that they, uh, that they attain. But then there are hidden ones um, who do things secretly without all the honor and respect and fame. And there was this, such, this, this kind of group. And there were leaders of this group. There was Eliyahu Baal Shem, Adam Baal Shem from Rapshitz, and others that were leading this group. And eventually the Baal Shem also became a member and a leader of this group. Let's move on to our next section here. The next part of his life, until... He openly revealed himself and started the Hasidic movements. Source number seven. Some of the quotes that we'll have here is quoted a letter. Letters of the Baal Shem Tov in the 19-teens, uh, uh, 1918 about, after the revolution in, in Russia where the Tsar was overthrown and eventually the Communist Party came to power. So many of the archives, the libraries, the files of the Tsarist government were um, stolen. People got their hands on them throughout the whole chaos of the war. And one such archive, known as the Kherson Archive, was published and started being uh, published or started being uh, publicized that this was uh, found, contained many letters and uh, artifacts of the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov lived in the early 1700s, And this is some 200 years later where they discovered these things which were confiscated when one of the, his, his uh, grandchildren, I believe, or one of the leaders of the Hasidic uh, Rebbe's later were, were arrested by the Russian government and all these things were confiscated. And there are many that claim that these things were forged, but uh, many in the Chabad uh, Rebbe's um, for many reasons, proving that these were were authentic. Maybe not originals, but copies of uh, authentic information. And many contained the letters of the Baal Shem Tov himself um, to his brother-in-law, to others, letters that were written to him about himself, in a, uh, telling about his life. And it's really fascinating. They were later published in the 1930s properly. 
um, short letters from the Baal Shem Tov, and it's really amazing to read. And some of the quotes that we have today are from these letters. Now, the letters are not usually the only source of this information. The, letter, the, the information we had passed down from other traditions, but once these letters were found, uh, they matched. Maybe some of the details were a little different, but generally they matched to these stories that were um, already established. <clears throat> so here is one letter. Source number seven. The Baal Shem Tov writes, On my 16th birthday, Elul 18, 5474. Now we're in the year 5784. This is some uh, 300 years ago. I went to meditate alone in the field, says the Baal Shem Tov. Suddenly, I beheld Elijah the prophet standing before me. Elijah explained to me the great pleasure that God derives from words of gratitude and praise uttered by men, women, and children, especially by simple folk, and especially when this is done on a consistent basis, reflecting a pure faith and a wholesome heart. The Baal Shem Tov reveals what Elijah told him. And from then, the Baal Shem Tov says he started to encourage others to praise God and try to elicit from them their Baruch Hashem. You know, when he asks a Jew, how are you? Thank God. Baruch Hashem. It's good. It's not so good. But it's all thank God. And he would go around to the men and to the women and to the children and encourage them to, to praise God for, for life or whatever is, whatever is happening. You know, at that time, the uh, if somebody was learned, then they were respected, then they were uh, wanted to marry into the family, and, and the Torah learning was was uh, prestigious, and it should be, and it, it still is today. But if somebody who, for whatever reason, they don't have that opportunity, what was their uh, they 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 felt that they are they're lacking value, and here the Baal Shem Tov came and said, when you say Baruch Hashem. God has pleasure. And sometimes even more than all of the great Torah learning and all of the great uh, spiritual levels that everybody else is reaching. Source number eight. That was on the Baal Shem Tov's 16th birthday. Ten years later, something else happens. But let's first look at source number eight. Achia, the Shilonites, the prophet found Yeravim. Here's a quote from the Torah, from the book of Kings. And this is after the days of King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, his son, Rechavam, wasn't as uh, pious and great and wise as his father, Shlomo. And uh, as a result, the kingdom split. Till then, the kingdom was united. There was one king of all of the Jewish people, all the 12 tribes. But at that point, the kingdom split. And the son of Solomon, Rechavam, remained in Jerusalem in the south over part of the tribes. And a man named Yeravam from the tribe of Ephraim, from Joseph, he was made king in the north. And who was involved with this? The prophet named Achia. Achia the Shilonite from the city of Shiloh. He found Yeravam. And the two of them were alone in the field. And Achia grasped the new garments with the... Uh, um, that was upon him and tore it into 12 pieces. 
And these 12 pieces, he then gave him 10 pieces and said 10 of the tribes will be under your jurisdiction and two of the tribes will go to the, to the son of uh, Solomon, Rahavam, and the kingdom would be split. And that's indeed what happened. So Achia was instrumental in the kingdom being split, but as a result of the kingdom being split, although they may have been pious at first, eventually this led to idol worship because the kingdom in the north, they didn't want the Jews in their territory going to the south where the holy temple was so they started uh, a temple there and eventually it led to idol worship and eventually that led to the, to the destruction of the temple and the exile exiling of the ten tribes and lots of terrible things you know as a result so this was this achia was the one that in source number nine the baal shem Tov tells us in 5 4 84 and 1724 on the 26th birthday of the baal shem Tov, israel's 26th birthday the ancient prophet Achia Hashiloni appeared to him. This is a common thing that uh, someone from the other world would appear. This is in the Talmud many times. This is uh, uh, it's no secret that people of a certain level that knew to study the Kabbalah and knew how to uh, do these things, great tzaddikim. Now we're, we're in a generation, we're like uh, the last generation before Mashiach. But as you go back and back, then generations were very spiritual. There were, there was lots of stuff going on besides just uh, <coughs> physical things. And Achia taught Yisrael the secrets of the entire Torah, starting that day with the first words of the Torah, Bereshis, and ending exactly ten years later with the last words of the Torah. For 10 years, from the Baal Shem Tov's age of 26 until 36, this special teacher of his, which we always refer to as my teacher, my special teacher, Achia, he was the one that taught the Baal Shem Tov the deep ideas of the secrets of the Torah. Kabbalah, and later in the teachings of Hasidus, which were brought out. And really, why was it Achia? Because here, Achia was trying to kind of mend what he started Generations ago, he started the splitting of the Jewish people. The two tribes here, the, 12, the ten tribes over there, the two kingdoms, the idol worship, and, and you know, not such good things. And here, Achia is the one to teach the Baal Shem Tov a new teaching, a new movement with, with a, a new approach to prepare the world to come back united together, to unite the Jewish people with love and unity and compassion and prepare them for Mashiach. The teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the teachings of Chassidus are a preparation to bring us in, to usher in the era of the Mashiach. So it's the same Achia who started it, you can say, is was here to finish it off. So this is the Baal Shem Tov. He was, even during this time, he was not revealed. Nobody knew that he's studying all this holy stuff. But secretly, he would go around. He didn't have a set place. You know, from here to there, he lived in Tulst. He lived in Brody. He got married. First, he got married once. His wife passed away. He got married a second time. His wife's name was Hana, or some say Leah Rachel. He had a daughter, Adul. He had a son, Tzvi. Um, and they would travel, he would travel around with, the, with these other hidden tzaddikim from place to place and try to, uh, approach the simple people, inspire them, guide them, all, you know, in a very, uh, in a way that they, they didn't, they weren't looked at as someone great, but they found secretive ways, mysterious ways to help people, to make, bring people closer to Torah and closer to God and uplift them during this difficult time. 
And in addition, he is known as the Baal Shem. What's a Baal Shem Tov? Baal Shem, without the Tov, Baal Shem means the master of the name. There were others that were known as a Baal Shem, or Baal Shem Tov. It wasn't his name, his name was Yisrael. Baal Shem means he was like a healer. You know, in those days, in the shtetls, and the villages, not everybody uh, had access to a proper doctor. So there was a lot of folk medicine, um, herbs, and all kinds of different things, as well as some Jewish medicine, like using different holy names of God that somebody knew how to use it. And this was also, this is not a new thing. This goes back to uh, times of uh, Temple and Moses. They, they would use certain, uh, I guess, codes and holy names of God to uh, manipulate or kind of uh, bring about salvation and stuff like that. And somebody who was the master of the name would be able to write what's called like a kameh, like an, amu, an amulet or uh, some sort of a thing to do this and do that. And they were called the Baal Shem, like a healer, a healer, a spiritual healer, a, uh, a doctor, some, some, something of that sort. And some were better, some were less, some were, 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 were learned, they were pious, some were just trying to you know, make some money. But the Baal Shem Tov apparently also uh, did this. He was a healer. He would, he would help people. He learned the stuff and he was able to help people. And uh, the name Tov, he was the, the good, the master of the good name, because he wasn't just an ordinary one. He was something really special. Source number 10. He became the helper of a Malamed. A Malamed is a school teacher. He was a helper, you know, simple. Nobody thought he was too, too great, too special. It was just a helper, taking little children to school. Excuse me, reciting their brachas with them, reciting blessings with them, teaching them to make the blessings over the tzitzis, when we put on a tzitzis, to recite the Shema Yisrael, the prayers, he would take them home because parents were scared to let the kids go out. It wasn't a safe time for Jewish people. and it was <clears throat> So he would accompany them, pick them up, take them home, and he built up the community of Israel just as one builds a house working from the bottom to the top, from the foundations. He started with little children. This is what he occupied himself with, not just with the great scholars, little children, taking care of them, giving them a warmth, a beauty, an enthusiasm, with a bracha, saying a blessing, and prayers, and Torah study. And Baal Shem Tov later said that these were the most precious years of his life. I think it was like the six years that he that he was a behelfer. He was an assistant. He wasn't even the teacher. He was an assistant to the teacher, picking them up, taking them home. This is something that he loved. And source number 11, if only this is his student, the Magid Abdovber, who succeeded him, said once, if only we kissed the Torah scroll with the same love that my master, the Baal Shem Tov, kissed the children when he took them to Cheder as a teacher's assistant. He just had this abundant love for everybody. No matter who, a young child, you just cared for them and loved them and uh, inspired them. <clears throat> many stories are told of the Baal Shem Tov during this time. He would uh, spend many time studying with his special teacher in the Carpathian Mountains, in uh, Ukraine, the Podolia region, somewhere in uh, probably uh, southern Poland, I guess. Ukraine, Poland... And slowly but surely, he started this new approach, this new method 
of being accepting, being uh, compassionate, bringing love. And one time he came to a, a city. And those days there was a custom that you know, there were Jewish people, they, they weren't uh, sitting and learning all day. And they may, may have not gone to yeshiva, but they were God-fearing to try to do the right thing. And there was this custom, people uh, would make a, a couple of dollars, they were preachers. They were great people, meaning they were very learned and well-versed in the Torah. And they would go from town to town and they would call uh, everybody to the, to the shul and they would tell, you know, preach and, and, and threaten to the Jewish people that if they don't become better, they're going to suffer and, 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 and try to get, make them cry. And the more tears that they were able to make them cry, the better the preacher was and arouse them to uh, tshuva, to repentance. Really, these people—they were—they were just suffering. They were just trying to 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 get through day by day. The Baal Shem Tov didn't like this approach. He came to one town, and the, and he was present when the preacher was there, threatening, frightening the, the Jewish people, um, rebuking them of the, telling them of the terrible uh, suffering that's waiting for them in this world, the next world, that their children are going to suffer, they're going to suffer, and and the cries and that that the. the it was terrible. And the Baal Shem Tov piped up and he said, source number 12, we said to the preacher, why do you rebuke the Jewish people for not serving the Creator well enough? Instead, as it were, rebuke the Master of the Universe for not having compassion for his little children. Why are you rebuking them? They're so genuine. They're just trying to do the right thing. Why don't you rebuke God and say, why aren't you having more compassion for, his, for your children? God's not this tyrant. He's not a, uh, you know, killer and trying to uh, <clears throat> punish and uh, the Jewish people. God is a compassionate Father. As the Baal Shem Tov taught, God's love of each and every Jew is infinitely greater than the love of elderly parents to their only child born to them in their later years. You can imagine how much love elderly parents have to their only child after so many years of waiting. That's how God loves every Jew, no matter, as he was told when he was five years old, no matter who he may be and whatever in state he may be. That was the Baal Shem Tov. Instead of emphasizing and using an approach of threatening, of rebuking, of how terrible, bring the Jewish people to serve God out of love. How God waits for their Baruch Hashem, waits for their every mitzvah, waits for their every Torah that they can participate in and uplift them, inspire them, encourage them instead of threatening them. That was the Baal Shem Tov's approach. God is our compassionate Father and we are His children whom He loves. They say a joke of... Uh, a preacher <clears throat> that is calling out to the crowd and says, do you know that every single one of you of this congregation is going to die? And everybody's faces fall and they're crying. And there's one man in the back, he's smiling. And the preacher notices that and he says, every single one of you in this congregation is going to be punished one day. And again, the man is smiling. One more time. Every single man, woman, and child in this congregation, they're going to suffer for all of their sins. And he's smiling. 
And he says, sir, did you hear what I said? He said, yes, I did. But I'm not a member of this congregation. I'm a guest. Ay, ay, ay. This was the Baal Shem Tov. Let's move on to our next section. You know, the original name for the Hasidic movement was not Hasidim. That was given to them by their opponents. Not everybody uh, <coughs> took with... Um, was so keen on this whole new movement that got started, we'll see in a second, uh, they were called uh, the the group of lovers, kind of, like l- just nice people, kind people, welcoming people, because that's what the, the Baal Shem Tov was about. Everybody is special. Everybody is significant. Everybody is holy. Yes, there are those that study Torah, those that work, okay, so everybody has their, everybody does what they need. Everybody has their mission in life. That was the Baal Shem Tov's approach. Let's move on to our third section. And when the Baal Shem Tov is 36 years old, after 10 years studying with his special teacher, Achia, and he is being told that it's time for him to openly reveal himself as the Baal Shem Tov, as the founder of the Hasidic movement, and really to get things going and to have a greater impact and to uh, change the world. And he is somewhat hesitant. He knows there's going to be opposition. And, uh, you know, he, he's busy in the forest connecting to God and, and uh, you know, his own spiritual journey. And here he's going to be a leader of the Jewish people full time. So his uh, teacher, uh, one of the teachers of Adam, actually never met him, but he sent a letter telling him this story about the source of his soul. We studied once about reincarnation. And here, the Baal Shem Tov is told about his soul, what it was in a previous incarnation. There was a Jew who lived in Israel, in the city of Tzfat, about 150 years before the Baal Shem Tov was born, in the year 1573. Less than 150 years. And one day, this guy, this man, gets a knock on his door in the city of Tzfat. And so late at night, he opens the door and there's a light beaming from this, someone at the door. He welcomes him in and he says, Shalom Aleichem, my name, you can guess, is Elijah the prophet. And I was sent from heaven to study with you, to tell you when Mashiach is going to come and let you know all the secrets on one condition. You must tell me what it is that you did special on the day of your bar mitzvah, which is the reason why you are being rewarded with my visit. The man says, he's a simple guy. He said, sir, or rabbi, Rebbe Eliyahu, what I did on the day of my bar mitzvah, I did for God alone. It's between me and God. No human being needs to know. And no angel, no uh, soul, no one needs to know. Even you. I'm not going to tell you what I did on the day of my bar mitzvah. I didn't do it for honor. I didn't do it for fame. I didn't do it for reward. I did it because I did it for God. I'm not telling you. Eliyahu, source number 13, what I did, I did for God alone. It is not for the knowledge of any creature, man or angel. Elijah pleaded and cajoled, 
promising even a greater spiritual gifts. But the man was steadfast in his refusal. Eliyahu said, you're not going to tell me? I'm going to disappear. I'm not going to teach you. He said, okay. Fine with me. I didn't ask you to come. <laughs> and sure enough, he disappeared. And there was a commotion up in heaven. Look at this man. Not only he did something special, he doesn't want to tell anybody about it. How can this man be rewarded? So Elijah was sent back again. This time, no conditions. Teach him. Teach him the secrets of the Torah. Teach him the deepest ideas, what the souls are doing up in paradise. And for sure enough, for the rest of his life, this man lived, studied with Elijah, and he was this great, righteous man, and nobody even knew about it. When this man passed away, his soul went up to heaven. They said, well, what are we going to do with this soul? We could send him to Gan Eden, send him to paradise. Nobody benefited from all of this great teaching that he was taught by Elijah. So it was decided, some time later, that this soul would return back to this world, and this time he would be openly revealed and teach the masses the secrets of the Torah and inspire them and start a new path, a new movement in serving God. This is your soul, Reb Adam told the Baal Shem Tov. So if you're not going to reveal yourself, you did this already once before, to be a secret hidden tzaddik. And there's no reason for you to continue to be, to be living here. You'll expire. If you want to live, and you want to fulfill the mission of your soul, you must reveal yourself. Moshanta was reluctant at first, like Moses was reluctant to, at the burning bush. It took seven days for God to convince him to go to Pharaoh and redeem the Jewish people. Eventually, the Baal Shem Tov, realizing that this was his calling, this was his mission, and this was the will of God. On the 18th day of Elul, on his 36th birthday, he openly revealed himself, showing people how great of a scholar and righteous tzaddik, miracle worker he was, and his fame spread far and near. The holy Rabbi Israel Baal Shemto. The first couple of years, he did not settle anywhere. He was here and there, traveling a lot. Source number 14, the travels of the Baal Shemta when he was first revealed, when he first revealed himself were for three purposes. Redemption of captives. Jewish people were, were, were suffering. They were leaseholders. They were renting inns and then they couldn't always pay and they were thrown into the dungeons and, and he would, uh, collect money and, and be involved in freeing these captives. And there are many Jewish stories as a result of this. You know, the stories of the Baal Shem Tov, there are books and books of the Baal Shem Tov stories. Many stories of him helping people. So that was one idea. Then, buttressing Torah and piety, inspiring people to study Torah. Even those that couldn't study Torah all day, more simple people, inspired them to make a, a weekly share in the morning and night when they come home and during prayer, uh, in evenings. Some things, uh, study some Torah. And piety, to, to have avas Yisrael, to have love for one another, and, and teaching people this new kind of method. And revealing the inner Torah, these new teachings, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the teachings of Chassidus, how God is uh, present and everything that happens is for, the re- for a reason and uh, this, the, the missions of souls and the preciousness of souls and so on, all the teachings of Chassidus. Uh, this was what he started to do and he would go around traveling. 
The revealed Torah is called water. Right? There's the revealed Torah. There's the Torah, the books, the Talmud. This everybody knows. It's accessible. Um, it's called water. Why? The Torah is like water. Water quenches our thirst. The Torah quenches the thirst of our soul. One goes to water. Everybody likes to live by the beach, right? Uh, you need water. You have to. You you go and you search for water. The inner Torah is called fire. One fears fire. You're afraid of fire. You avoid fire. You run away. Uh, fire is consuming, hot. Therefore, the giver must go to the recipient and say to him, "Do not fear, for Hashem your God is cons- is a consuming fire." The hid- the revealed parts of Torah, law, you know, halacha and stories of the Torah. That's revealed. It's like water. We, we people, everybody is attracted to the Torah. But the inner parts of the Torah, teachings of the Kabbalah and the Hasidus and the mystical ideas, that's uh, some at least at that time you avoid it because it's hard to understand and uh, it's consuming. It's you don't really know what it is. So that's why the Baal Shem Tov had to travel around. Don't just wait for the students to come to the yeshiva to enroll. He would travel around, bringing the fire to them, showing them that God, it's not a. It's not a consuming fire. It's not a fire which is eliminating. It's illuminating. The fire which brings lights. And that's really what Chassidus was all about. To bring light. Not to change anything. There's no new mitzvahs. No new commandments. There are some customs, different things. But it's like turning on the lights. Telling us what a soul is. Telling us uh, how everything has a reason. And God's planning everything. It's like turning on the lights. And it's like infusing life, like a fire, which is warm. Water is cold, you know, it's very logical, it's very, uh, it's very, uh, it just sits there, you know, calm. But the inner parts of Torah, they're like fire, dancing, Hasidim dance a lot, then they sing, there's fervor, there's passion, there's enthusiasm, there's feeling. Source number 15. The Baal Shem Tov used to instruct his disciples in a regular Gemara Talmud study session. His style of study with great acuity and brilliance and included a study of Rambam, that's Maimonides, Alfasi, that's the Rif, Rosh, and other commentaries of the Rishonim Germain to the Gemara text under examination. He was a scholar. It's not maybe what he's known for, but he was a brilliant scholar and he taught not just the simple people, he taught everybody, he taught even great scholars and he visited all the great yeshivas of the time and, and uh, conversed with Torah with some of the great minds of the time, became his students and followers, the Yaakov of Pono and uh, the Magid of Dovber, the Magid of Mizrich and many, many others. And even many that did not... Uh, become his followers and become Hasidim, but they uh, respected him for for his for his great brilliance of Torah. But he didn't write many of uh, scholars that we know today. We know them from their books. We study their books, you know, Rashi and Ramban or you know, Pnei Yeshua, who lived during the Baal Shem Tov's times. We know them from their commentaries on the Torah. That wasn't the Baal Shem Tov's, uh, I guess, main kind of thing. He didn't write a book. He didn't write uh, his teachings. Uh, what we do have is from his students, collected from his students, that they shared, you know, his teachings and expounded upon them. So, so we have his teachings. But the Vashanta was a brilliant scholar and teacher. 
Source number 16, a very famous anecdote, and we'll uh, speed up the pace here. Another letter from that collection of letters from the Baal Shem Tov. On Rosh Hashanah of the year 5507, so that would be 1747, I performed by means of oath an elevation of soul to the higher spiritual realms and saw wondrous things I have never seen before. That which I saw and I learned there is impossible to convey in words, even face to face. This is a letter to his brother-in-law of Gershon from Kitov, who was the Baal Shem Tov's wife's brother. I asked my master, Achiat the Shilonite, to come with me as I had never before ascended to such a high level. I ascended from level to level until I entered the chamber of the Mashiach, where the Mashiach learns Torah with all the sages and tzaddikim up in heaven and their souls. So 17, I asked Mashiach, when will the Master come? The Jewish people are praying for you every day. When are you going to come already? And he answered, when your teachings will become public and revealed in the world and your wellsprings will burst forth to the farthest extremes. Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov in his words, When your wellsprings will spread forth out to the outside, then Mashiach will come. The teachings of Hasidus were there to encourage the Jewish people in their darkest times. And also as a preparation for the times of the Mashiach. So the, the dissemination and the learning study of Hasidus actually ushers in the coming of Mashiach. The Baal Shem Tov uh, set up his courts in the city of Mezhibush, which today is in the Ukraine. We have records. This man actually lived. He's not a it's not a, um, you know, a legend. This picture is taken, uh, I think, in the early 1900s from the, the synagogue in Mezhibush, known as the Baal Shem Tov Synagogue. It was destroyed by, uh, by the Nazis during the war, but uh, this synagogue was a replica of the synagogue. We have pictures also of the inside. A replica was rebuilt, you know, it's exactly the same. And uh, can be visited today. The, the shul of the Baal Shem Tov. And we have his prayer book. This is his prayer book. And uh, it's on display sometimes. You can actually see it. And it's handwritten. Uh, different names of his students. And, and we know these students. We have stories of, of his students. And uh, how the Baal Shem Tov prayed for them. Um, I think it was the 1980s. It was a... Uh, researcher went back to Poland, or Ukraine, in Mezhibush, I guess, and did research there and pulled up the files from the early, you know, the mid-1700s, 1750s, I believe, or 1740s, and the tax uh, returns, the tax papers, and the, there's a name there, the, known as the Baal Shem Tov. He's, he's written there as a doctor, like a healer, because that's what a Baal Shem means, folk healer, someone who helped other people. And uh, he didn't have to pay tax because he lived in the community's uh, the shoals building or something, a house. But uh, there's records of him. He lived. 
we have his grave in Mezhibosh, where which is, uh, many of his students are buried. The real guy is a real man. And um, let's see here, source number 18. Just an example of what, what life was the, being around the Baal Shem Tov. In the shul there in Mezhibosh, a man turned to his friend, they were, they were fighting, arguing, and he says, I'm going to rip you apart like a fish. What did the Baal Shem to do? He called the students together, told them all to hold hands, and he put his hands, right hand, his left hand, on the students near him. Source 18. Suddenly, the students shouted in terror as they were shown a vision of the man at whom the non-serious threat was directed being dismembered, actually ripping apart like a fish in the vision. Thus, he taught his students the powerful effect of words that at times can only be perceived in higher realms. Everything we say has some sort of impact. Yeah, the guy wasn't ripped apart like a fish, but he was able to show them some sort of vision of a different realm where there was something taking place which wasn't nice. That was the Baal Shem Tov, teaching us that everything has value, everything has uh, meaning, everything has a reason. And reminds me of a song. Every time you do a mitzvah, something takes place. The tefillin become holy. There, the body becomes holy. When we light Shabbos candles, there's a, there's a spiritual light in the home. We can't always see it. But they didn't either see him ripping apart like a fish. But they were led to be shown. And Rosh was trying to teach his students, and this was passed down, that there is such an impact and a elevation that takes place. Whether we do something good or not so good, there's another realm. If you open your eyes, for sure you will see this world is not the only reality hidden behind material life. There is a source of infinite light. There is an infinite light that God has, there's different realms, not just what we see. There's so much more behind reality. Let's move on to our final section, a couple of short um, ideas where we see today how uh, the Baal Shem Tov impacted our life amazingly. It changed the whole world, changed the Jewish world, even those that are not part of the Hasidic movement. Let me just explain. So the Baal Shem Tov lived in Mezhibosh. He passed away in 17... 17- 60, on the first day of Shavuos, on his 62nd, he was almost 62, and uh, later his uh, son took over for a short while, then his successor was the Magid of Dovber of Mizrich, and then many of the Baal students, the Baal had 60 primary students, and then his successor had 120 students, and uh, many of them became leaders in their own towns, sort of divided the territory up, and everybody in their own area in, in Ukraine, in, in Belarus, in White Russia, in Poland, in, uh, in Lithuania, and the whole area over there um, slowly spread. And, and the Hasidic movement, people that were uh, you know, part of this whole new wave, a new way of serving God, um, you know, swept world Jewry. And even those that, that were opponents, kind of, and later, unfortunately, led to uh, not, not such uh, nice stories, 
But eventually, the ideas of Hasidus teaching penetrated all groups. And everybody today pretty much, um, in some way or another, are impacted by the way the ways of, of Hasidic life, initiated by the Baal Shem Tov. So here are just some ex- a couple of examples. So that's number 19, a very famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Every single thing one sees or hears is an instruction for his conduct in the service of God. This is the idea of service, to comprehend and discern in all things a way in which to serve God. Everything that you see or hear, there's a message for you. Because nothing happens by chance. So if we encountered or, or made aware of something, it's either because we can be of assistance or there's something to teach us. There's a lesson for us. Because everything that happens is orchestrated by God. God makes everything happen. Not just when He created the world 5,784 years ago, but every moment He's intimately involved in bringing this world into existence. And therefore everything that happens at every second is part of God's plan. And it's all one piece of a puzzle and, and there's a there's a lesson there's a there's a meaning there's something there for you that's jewish custom we take lessons that this can teach us that and that can teach us, oh this happened that it's all connected it's all one big puzzle source number 20 from the first day of elul here's an actual custom now we're in the month of elul the month leading up to rosh hashanah this is a custom that he heard from his teacher achia that from the first day of Elul until Yom Kippur, we are to say three chapters of Tehillim every day. The Baal Shem Tov was a big fan of the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms. And every day during this month, we should say three chapters until Yom Kippur. Then on the Yom Kippur, we say the last 36. So we say 9, 9, 9, and 9 throughout the day of Yom Kippur, concluding 150. But throughout the month of Elul, like today, we say three chapters. For example, today is the 12th day of the month of Elul. So today's chapters are 34, 35, 36. Um, whoever did not start on the first day is to start with the Tehillim of the particular day on which he realizes his omission and complete the missing Tehillim later. So that's the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, which is practiced till today, 300 years later. Every day, I, I said it today. Uh, we say three chapters of Tehillim because it's the month of Elul. In addition to the regular Tehillim that a person says. Source number 21. The Baal Shem Tov called the third meal of the final day of Pesach, Mashiach's meal. Because on this day, the radiance of the light of Mashiach shines openly. This is practiced till today and almost everywhere. The final day of Pesach, we make a special meal towards the end of the holiday. And we wash, we have matzah, and we also now have four cups of wine or grape juice. Sort of like a little seder. The first day of Passover is our redemption, our liberation from Egypt. The last day of Passover is dedicated to our future redemption. This goes back to the Baal Shem Tov. This was a custom that he started. Here's an interesting one. When one encounters water, there's an appropriate maxim of the Baal Shem Tov, BST, Baal Shem Tov, that he should say. When encountering water, one should say that the Baal Shem Tov says that it is a sign of blessing. Water is a sign of blessing. Water flowing. Water is blessing. So this is a custom. It's hard for me to explain it, but uh, I grew up with this. Many have this custom. It goes back to the Baal Shem Tov, that if you meet water, if you come across a stream, or you're driving by a, a bridge, oh, there's some water here. Or you see in those days, you would see water carriers with buckets of water, it would deliver water to everybody. So the Baal Shem Tov would say, water, this is a sign of blessing. 
And the way we say it, we say, water. The Baal Shem Tov says that it's a sign of blessing. We invoke the merit of the name of the Baal Shem Tov. 23. This practice was handed down by the early Hasidim on the authority of the Baal Shem Tov on the eve of Shabbos and on Shabbos morning one immerses oneself in a mikvah. So this is for men. Women you usually go to the mikvah you know, once a month or so uh, when their time of the month uh, is over uh, until they resume relations with their husband. Uh, that's a mitzvah. That's a biblical mitzvah. For men, it wasn't so common and one of the customs of the Hasidic movement that the Baal Shem Tov sort of reinstated, which goes back to the Torah and Temple times, but it had to do with purity and impurity, which is not so re- relevant today because we don't have a temple. But nonetheless, the Baal Shem Tov sort of brought this back that there is a great holiness that comes upon a person when they immerse in the mikvah. So especially for Shabbos and for holiday on Shabbos, or even every day before prayers, this is a Hasidic custom, something that I try to do, to immerse in a mikvah, and therefore in any uh, Hasidic community, you'll have, besides the women's mikvah, a special mikvah just for men, before visiting the Ohel, a special, the Rebbe's grave, that's also a special time to immerse in a mikvah. There's something special, a certain purity that comes upon a person um, by immersing in a mikvah. Source 24, any... Uh, in Queens, where the Rebbe is, the cemetery, so nearby, they build mikvahs, so people can immerse in a mikvah. Or wherever there is a need for it, this is uh, definitely a, uh, became sort of part and parcel of uh, Jewish life, or Hasidic life, to have a, a men's mikvah. Number 24. One recites the psalm that corresponds to one's age. Every day, to say the Chapter of Psalms corresponds to your age. What does it mean corresponding? One who is 49 recites Psalm 50. Because if you're 49, then you completed 49 years of life and you're now living in your 50th year. It is the custom to read in addition the Psalm that corresponds to the age of the Rebbe. The Rebbe is our leader connected to our soul, Dar Neshama. Uh, so in addition, we also say, now we're saying for our Rebbe, chapter 122. Finally, source number 25, teaching is the Baal Shem Tov. There's so many teachings, there's so many stories, uh, you know, with a little overtime, there's so many books you can read uh, about the amazing stories. It's like hard to not give a full taste of the Baal Shem Tov stories. You know, that he would, this is like a picture, uh, a painting of what the Baal Shem Tov stories were like. They would go in the wagon and the horse somehow would just cover so much, so much ground in a short time. They would get places and they were the Hasidim and the Baal Shem Tov were in the wagon saying, teaching Torah and stories and they were just like living this like spiritual, mystical life. And many such stories, the Baal Shem Tov would reveal to people the reason of their soul, what, what happened before, the, how they were reincarnation and the purpose of life and just showing like that there's so much more to life and to everything than, than what we see. Um... So many examples you can bring. Just an example of learning a lesson from things. So here's a famous story that the Rebbe would say very often, quite often, that uh, the Baal Shem Tov was sitting in the synagogue with his students, and uh, someone puts his head in and says, my horse is stuck in the mud, uh, come help. He said, how are we going to help you? We, we can't help you, we're not strong, we're not able. Or... And he said, please, please, if you don't help me, my horse is going to die. He said, we can't, we can't. So we said to them in Russian, he says, 
You could help me. You just don't want to. If you really wanted to, you'd be able to help me. The Vashemta said, oh, this is not random. This is a lesson for us. Sometimes we complain, oh, I can't. It's too hard. You could. We just don't really want to. If we really, really wanted to, there's nothing that stands in the way of a will. Here's the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Tishrei is blessed by God Himself. On the Shabbos of Blessing, the last Shabbos in the previous month of Elul, with this power, the people of Israel bless the other months 11 times a year. So every, uh, every, Shab- every month is a new Jewish month, and the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh, the new month, in Shul, on Shabbos, we, we bless the upcoming month. But we don't do so this month, coming up to Tishrei, the new month of the year, uh, the simple reason is we want we don't we don't want the the we don't want to publicize when the day of judgment is the new year because then up in heaven the Satan is going to um, prosecute so we, we try to keep it a secret whatever that means the whole discussion for itself so we don't publicly bless the month so you could think well maybe we're losing out we don't bless the month comes about Shanta says no we're not losing out God Himself blesses this month all the other eleven months of the year we bless the month. Publicly, we, we ask God to bless, but we were involved. But this month, there's a deeper reason. God Himself blesses the month, and that gives us the power that all in the future months of the year, 11 months, we should be able to bless. So that's just an example of the Vashem Tov just bringing encouragement and beauty and light to the Jewish people. The Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Sroel Baal Shem Tov, lived from 1698 till 1760, and his teachings... And his inspiration continues to inspire hundreds of thousands of Jewish people around the world. Thank you for joining us for today's lesson. And I hope I was successful at giving you a taste of this amazing, wondrous personality, the Baal Shem Tov.